Tyler, I'm Ken Cruz, author of Dad Bod, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 282, Romancing the Stone Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. This week, we're going all the way back to 1984. We're going to review Romancing the Stone. But before we get to our movie review, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, Derek? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, I had a chance to watch a few things. Actually, okay. I had a chance to watch a few really good things this oh, week. Oh, good. Um, so uh, I'll just jump right to it. Um, I'll start off with some TV. I think I mentioned on the last one, uh, I've got my Apple TV subscription short term temporarily. So we've been binging as much Apple TV as we can. And we watched a series that uh, just recently came out uh, here in 2024. It's a British series called Criminal Record. Uh, it stars um, Kush Jumbo, uh, who is a performer people may know from uh, The Good Wife, The Good Fight. Uh, she's one of the lawyers in that, and uh, she's the main police officer in this one. And Peter Capaldi, who was most recently one of the uh, Doctor Who actors. So it's the two of them uh, as police detectives that don't get along, and it's an eight-part series. It was really good. We we binged that one this week. It was quite good. Really enjoyed it. It's called Criminal Record on Apple TV. Hmm. Then I had a chance to visit uh, two movies, both of which I've seen before. Neither one uh, I've seen in a while, though. Uh, the first one I watched was uh, the 2011 uh, adaptation of the book The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. This is the one directed by David Fincher and the stars um, uh, David uh, – no, not David. Daniel Craig, who was James Bond, and um, and uh, I want to say Mara Rooney. It's I think that's who it is, one of the Rooneys. Um, and not yeah, Andy Rooney. No, okay. Uh, it's not the not the one that was in The Martian. Her sister, the one who was in the Facebook movie Social Network, which I watched the week before, which was part of the reason that I wanted to watch this because I was on a little bit of a David Fincher kick. Uh, anyway, I hadn't seen <laughs> surprisingly the, in a while. the only Rooney I know is Andy Rooney. So that's I'm I'm not surprised, I'm, but. So anyway, the, the the movie came out in 2011 uh, in the U.S. It's English speaking movie. The it's based on a very very famous book, very popular book. Uh, that and they did a movie adaptation in Europe. And I want to say because the book takes place in Sweden, I assume the movie the original movie was in Swedish, and so then they remade it in English. So this is the English remake. It's quite good. I watched it on Netflix. It was fantastic. I'd seen it before, but it had been a while. Uh, and then I had a chance to watch the movie The Big Short, which is adapted from uh, Michael Lewis book. Michael Lewis is the author who wrote The Blind Side and Moneyball. Uh, he also wrote this book, The Big Short. And this movie is all about the the housing crisis, the mortgage housing crisis in the U.S. in the, the oh, yeah, mid to late like 2000s. 2008, yeah. Yeah, 2006, 7, 8, 9. Like that's when the movie takes place. Mm -hmm. And huge cast. Steve Carell is, is Steve Carell, uh, Christian Bale, Brad Pitt are uh, sort of the main the main stars but oh my god i went back and looked through the imdb of the, all the people who are in this movie who have small parts and it's a who's who like the performers in this are 
amazing. And some of them have very small parts, like uh, Margot Robbie, who is, you know, as everyone knows, was just in the Barbie movie. She's got like a little two minute scene. Like it's, they do a lot of cutaway scenes where they explain some of the banking and, and financial terminology in a way that's easy for the audience to understand it. And so when they do that, they always cut to some famous person. And so in one of those ones, they cut away to Margot Robbie in a bubble bath, and they're, you know, as she's explaining how subprime mortgages work or something. But uh, the movie itself, I mean, the subject matter on its face seems pretty dry. Like, who gives a crap about about mortgages and the financing and blah, blah. Like, you just, you don't really care. But the movie and the book, if you are not familiar with them, really talks about the handful of people that did the homework did the due diligence, realized that there was a lot of shenanigans going on and essentially ended up making millions and billions of dollars off of the off of the misfortune and the the ignorance and the arrogance of the banks who were doing all sorts of illegal and shady things. And I think the most telling thing about this is by the end of all of it, nobody got fined. Nobody went to jail. Nobody got punished. All the banks got away with everything. And meanwhile, regular people, millions and millions of regular people, People lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their life savings, lost their pensions. So it's it's certainly a cautionary tale, and I think it's every bit as relevant today as it was when the movie came out in 2015 and when everything happened in 2007, 2008. So it was uh, a little bit of an eye opener, a, a good sort of reminder of of how you know big business can really just do whatever they want in today's day and age. But uh, the movie itself is really really good. If you haven't seen it. It may sound like it's a heavy topic, but it's presented in a very, very, uh, very good way. And uh, the performance in this movie are fantastic. It was nominated for Best Picture. Like, it's that good. So anyway, the big short, uh, I just actually saw it on one of the TV channels. It wasn't even on any of my streamers. So hmm. and then I had a chance to watch two different documentaries. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. I haven't heard the song in a while. That's really great. So. Yeah, no, I, I kind of felt like I owed it yeah. to you and, and to everybody else and to yeah. myself. Who are we kidding? Of course. Yeah. So I watched uh, three episodes of a series on CNBC called Super Heists. Now, you know me. I love a good heist movie. You I do. love a movie yeah. where the criminals just, you know, get away with it. And um, this one is is seven one hour episodes, little documentary reenactments where they they talk about essentially the greatest crimes, the greatest heists ever pulled in America. Well, not even just in America, like it's international. And uh, they're fascinating. Like I and I was not, you know, you know, again, a lot of these kinds of stories get turned into movies or inspiration for like episodes of Law and Order and things like that. So you end up sort of hearing about them peripherally. I hadn't heard about any of the ones that I watched and they were really good, really clever, really creative and and most of them were a lot older. Like I think one of them was from like this took place in the seventies and one of them took place in the early eighties. So it, they're really digging like back into history. And, and it's just fascinating to see how some of these crimes were pulled off and how some of these criminal gangs were able to infiltrate banks and, and rob from rich people. And, and you, you just sort of watch it with today's lens and go, well, they wouldn't be able to get away with a lot of that stuff just because of technology. But it's, it's fascinating and, and highly entertaining to see them just robbing super rich people who treat people badly. So it's sort of a nice contradiction to the big short where it was complete opposite of that. And then on Netflix, there's a new documentary dropped a couple of weeks ago. I finally had a chance to watch it. It's called The Greatest Night in Pop. And this is the documentary around the making of the song We Are the World. And Ooh. so what I didn't, again, I know I knew about the song. I mean, I remember it was a big deal in 85, but I was only 
11 years old. So I didn't really know a lot about the behind the scenes. This documentary, it runs about 90 minutes and it's all about how, how and why the song got put together, how they wrote it and came up with it. Like it was Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones put the song together. And then they wanted to have like 35 performers on the album. And they're like, well, how are you going to do that? So the American music awards were happening in Los Angeles a few weeks later and they're like if we can get our act together we can get all these people after the award show to come to this studio and record this song and so that's exactly what they did and the documentary is a fascinating look behind the scenes at a who's who in pop music in 1985 and you get to see real live footage of these people in this day in this time in this event and just in many cases, just being themselves. And, and they talk about how even the performers were all starstruck with each other and they were like asking other performers for their autographs. And it was it was just really interesting to see how even per famous music performers are fans of other musicians and they maybe don't all know each other. But uh, no, it was great. And I mean, you don't actually ever get to hear the full song until the very end at the credits. They just played over the credits. So I was talking to somebody who's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like that song. I'm like, I understand you maybe it's it was overplayed, but uh, you don't actually have to sit through the whole thing at any point until the very end. It's just fascinating to see sort of, you know, usually say you don't want to see how the sausage is made. This is one where seeing how the sausage is made is, is fascinating. And I kind of after it, I had to go and listen to the song in its entirety and watch the video again just to see how it all came together. But no, it was, it was fascinating. It's on Netflix. It's called The Greatest Night in Pop. So if you have Netflix and you're looking for something interesting and you're an 80s music aficionado, Give it a watch. I think I'm going to give that a watch because yeah, I always thought that that would have been difficult to pull off. Like you got to get everybody like to check their ego at the door. But you're saying everybody was like the opposite, you know, Oh, that's very interesting. So there was literally a sign Quincy Jones posted. It said, check your ego at the door. Yeah. Yep. You know, but it sounds like everybody was kind of in awe of each other. So that wasn't like a really big deal. So very very cool. There were a few, there were a few people like, Mm -hmm. again, I don't want to ruin it, but there was like they were there a long time. Like they thought it was gonna take a few hours. It took like nine hours. So oh, by sure. the end of it, some, some tempers were starting to get a little hot. But uh, again, for the most part, everyone was on their best behavior. No, it was, it was quite good. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so for me, Derek, I'm a big fan of WKRP in Cincinnati. I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned that or not. Uh, here maybe on once or twice. Uh, well, if you've ever watched WKRP, most episodes had a quick scene of like Dr. Johnny Fever in the DJ booth, either throwing to a song or, you know, reading an ad or doing some kind of DJ radio banter, you know, between songs. Mm-hmm. Well, the good people at awfooey.com t- took the time to go through each and every WKRP episode from all four seasons. The show ran from 78 to 82. And they took all the episodes and they edited out all of the Dr. Johnny Fever banter between songs. And they spliced it all together and added in the full length versions of the songs that he was throwing to. And they made it into a three hour radio show. Wow. It might be the coolest thing I've ever come across ever. It's available at awfooey.com. So A-W-P-H-O-E-E-Y.com. Awfooey.com. Full three hour long Dr. Johnny Fever radio show made up of all of his splice scenes from the original WKRP series. I just, I had to give these people a shout out. It is amazing. So make sure you check it out. You can share it on social media, tell your friends about it, give it a listen. It is absolutely outstanding. So that's my thing. 
I also have this. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, I was thinking we're doing Romancing the Stone, and the movie takes place in Colombia. So I thought I would do something different this week. I thought I would do the dad joke in Spanish. I was just about to say, are you doing it in Spanish? Yeah, okay. I am. Okay. So, Derek. Que le dijo un teco a otro teco? Teco de main horse. Oh. <laughs> you, you didn't I, like I it? Nothing. I don't understand Spanish. Ah, to madre. Something I've always appreciated about you is your sense of humor. We got a bleeder! 36, does that include me? Because if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Ah, you know what, man? I gotta take one more turn around the horn here. Can fart jokes. Fine. Be in the Why? Hey, try to just on your way through the parking lot. Join the club. What day did the Lord create Spinal Tap? And why couldn't he rest on that day, too? Okay, Derek, so this week we're going to go back 40 years, all the way back to 1984. We're going to do Romancing the Stone, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Now, Derek, going into this, you had seen this movie before. I think you said at the last, the end of last show, you saw this in the movie theater when you were like 11 years old or something, and you have not seen yep. it since, right? No, not that I can recall. I, I know my mom was a big fan of the, the two lead performers, and okay. when I was younger, my mom used to take me to see a lot of movies. My dad traveled a lot for work, so that was it. My mom would take my brother and I see movies and i remember my mom really wanted to see this obviously raiders of the lost ark had been a big thing a couple years earlier and i i had seen that one like four or five times and my mom knew i loved it so she's like we're gonna go see this one it's like indiana jones and i think you'll like it and i remember as a young kid there was enough like indiana jones that i did enjoy it but honestly i i don't really didn't really remember very much of the movie so when you suggested watching this i thought okay here's a chance to revisit it through you know 40 years of living and, and pop culture experience. Let's go back and take a look at it. So, <laughs> so it, should it was, be it was interesting. a fun revisit. So yeah. for me, it's been at least 30 years since I've seen this movie. I had it on VHS and I watched it like in the 80s and in the end of the 90s. But then I, I haven't seen it since. So your initial thoughts, I'm really interested to know. Going back and watching this after 40 years, what's your initial thought? Because I, I just want to mention, too, I received quite a few emails and messages from a number of listeners coming into this. You know, I think it's a movie that a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia for. That, that was the impression I got, you know, from people that were reaching mm -hmm. out to me. Mm -hmm. But what were your thoughts after after 40 years of seeing this? Well, overall, I enjoyed it. Um, again, it, it was like watching it for the first time. I really had no memory of really so many parts of it were like, wow, how did I not remember this? But I actually had to watch it in two sittings simply because... I got sorted to the halfway point where they get to the airplane and then I, I, I literally I had to go out. So I, I just I missed I misjudged my timing on that one. So I had to watch the rest of it the next day. And after watching that first half, I thought, I'm not really liking this movie very much. But then when I came back the next day and watched the second half, I'm like, wow, this movie's great. So I, I think that's an interesting sort of way of the movie. It's like the first half I thought was a little kind of slow, but then the second half after they spend the night in the airplane, it's it really picked up and, and did it for me. So overall, I did enjoy it, uh, but I just thought it was sort of an interesting uh, an interesting way for me to experience it this time around sort of as two halves. I, I definitely thought the last half an hour was the best part of the movie. That's for sure. Going back oh, and yeah. watching this after 30 years, I actually I enjoyed it quite a bit. I was actually surprised. There was, there was that touch of nostalgia that I remembered about it, but I also felt it was, that was a lot of fun to watch. 
you know, and that was that was for sure. For me, Chris, I mean, a part of it is I'm a big fan of Michael Douglas. I like I've seen a lot of his movies over the years, um, and I I find that he. I always feel he has like a certain charisma about him. Like he always, I, I mean, I'm sure behind the scenes, he's probably a huge jerk, but uh, you know, on screen, just a lot of the time sort of, he's got, he always seems to have this chemistry, especially with the ladies. I mean, he's easy on the eyes, but, but he doesn't, he's not like, I don't know how to describe it, especially in this movie. It's like, he's the lead, but he's, this was a time when it was like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone mm-hmm. were like your, your prototypical, this is what the hero should look like. And he, he's not, he's not that. But at the same time, you look at someone like Indiana Jones, who's a little more like Harrison Ford to me is always a little more, we'll call him like mild manner, especially the character is supposed to be a professor who just goes out into the field. Whereas Kirk Douglas to me, and especially in this is sort of like he's an adventurer. Like it's sort of that old school treasure hunter style movie trope where it's like, this is the guy who has been living in the jungle and he knows the roots and he knows the language and he's, he's a little rough around the edges, but he's, he's got some charm to him and he's got that charisma. So that to me was a real big selling point of this movie was just getting to see Michael Douglas sort of in his prime, just, just cooking. Like you could tell when he was doing this movie, he's like, this may not win me an Oscar, but I'm going to have a good time with it. And that was that sort of came across when I was watching it. Yeah, I agree. Let's we'll come back to the cast a bit. I want to talk a little bit about the box office because it was a success. Sure. So in that year, in 1984, the number one movie at the box office. Do you know what it was? Can you take a in guess? 1984 with Ghostbusters. It was Ghostbusters. Yeah, like by by far and away, it was the most popular film that year. But but funny enough, the second film was Indian Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You know. Wow. So we'll, we'll loop back to that in a second. Oh, Gremlins, Karate Kid, and Police Academy rounded out the top five. There was also Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, Star Trek Three, The Search for Spock, Terms of Endearment, and Romancing the Stone made the top ten. So it it grossed $76 million domestically, so it did quite well. A few other Chris, movies... Out of that top, Chris, out of that top ten, have you seen all ten? Oh, yeah, I've seen every single movie on there. Yeah, Absolutely, multiple times, all of them. Um, in terms of endearment, I only saw once, but every, all the other ones I've definitely seen mm-hmm. more than once. I think maybe Star Trek Three I only saw once. I mean, I wasn't wasn't it's big fair. on the ones after after Wrath of Khan. But a, a couple other movies I wanted to mention that were on that list as I'm looking at it. So Revenge of the Nerds was in number sixteen with forty million. Terminator was twenty first. Sixteen Candles thirty seventh. Top Secret forty three. Night of the Comet. I like that one. That was in sixtieth place. And then going way down. This is Spinal Tap with four million dollars at number one twenty nine that year, and, <laughs> and funny enough, them in the cutaway on the, in the lead. In the yeah, movie. and the, the one that really gets me here is Repo Man. You know that movie finished one hundred sixty ninth. It only made one hundred twenty nine thousand dollars at the box office. It's I don't think t- I is that guy Emilio Estevez. Yes, that? yes, a real, real, real yeah. cult. Uh, cult never, never saw it, but I know of it. Yeah, but anyway, so *Romancing the Stones* it was a really a commercial success, and it spawned a sequel in 1985, *The Jewel of the Nile*. And never saw the sequel. I, and not only was it a commercial success, it was actually a critical success. This movie was nominated for an Oscar for best film editing. Wow. That year. It was it was nominated up against The Killing Fields, Amadeus, The Cotton Club, and Passage to India. The Killing wow. Fields won, probably rightly so. But the thing is, it was also nominated for two Golden Globe Awards and won them both. It won Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical. Wow. Kathleen Turner won that. And it also won Best Picture for Comedy or wow. Musical. Yeah. So it was, it was quite the success. So... I have a question for you. 
what would you consider the genre of this film to be? Like for me, it's it's kind of a mishmash. It's like an adventure comedy romance. But yeah, I, I would almost say like romantic adventure if, yeah. if that was a real genre. It's kind of hard to like classify it. And and so another question I have for you. Is it you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark, and so this piques my interest. Is it a Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoff? Well, no. I mean, to me, a ripoff is like blatant something where you blatantly well, rip it off. You blatantly copy it. You you use all the beats, you make a few small changes. This to me has enough originality uh, that it's it. I wouldn't call it a ripoff. And from what I understand, the the idea of the script was was started well before Raiders even came out. But I I think really the only similarities to Raiders of the Lost Ark is that you know it's they're hunting for this buried treasure. But mm. that's it. Like that's a pretty broad sweeping generalization to say you know oh it's inspired by it's a ripoff it's an homage. It's not. It's just it's part of a treasure hunting genre like. No, I wouldn't say I ripped it off at all. Because I tell you, when it first came out, that's how it was originally perceived. Like, I mean, you got to go back in time. But when, like after Raiders came out in 81, there was a whole slew of ripoffs. There was, I don't know if you, if you remember any of these, King Solomon's Mines. It also spawned a sequel, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. Total Raiders of Lost Ark ripoff. There was a movie called The High Road to China. Total Raiders ripoff. Even you, the, the Mummy. And you could argue the Goonies, too, was inspired by Raiders. I remember there was a TV show called Bring Them Back Alive. It was a Raiders ripoff. It came out in like 82. And I'll never... There was this one really low-budget ripoff called Invaders of the Lost Gold. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> but Jeez. this one was... You ripped it, off a better title. I know, no kidding. Uh, Romancing the Stone was sort of a Raiders. At the very least, I guess it sort of capitalized on the success of Raiders. Like you said, the the script was, you know, it was in turnaround at the time and it'd been around for a while, get kicked around. But I think it probably got made because of Raiders, you know. But Yeah, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark opened a lot of doors for movies in this genre, considering how successful it was. But again... Raiders was a success for a lot of reasons. You got the Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Harrison Ford of it. Without those three components, a movie about a treasure hunt is not Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and I I think this movie is one of the better ones that sort of came out, you know, and capitalized on that because because I think this movie is a lot of fun and it it had a sense of humor too, which was really, really important. Yes, for sure. I want to talk about something that I thought was important going back and watching this was the, the idea of the female character. So instead of having the female character as that typical damsel in distress, which you've mentioned before on the podcast, Mm. this movie flips that notion on its head. It makes the female character the protagonist. Like, this is her story, right? It's her perspective. But she's still that fish out of water that does need to be rescued from time to time. Uh, you know, I, I never got the sense for a minute that she was in charge, that she was empowered, like in, in, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but there have been more recent uh, interpretations of this kind of a story where it's almost the opposite of what you see here, where it's the woman that's the lead and the man is the bumbling. I need help. Um, like, but, but to your point, I think this is better. It's not the typical, you know, sort of damsel in distress where he's just rescuing her from, from a hostage situation. Like she does clearly, she's intelligent. She like, she's obviously a writer and she's able to, um, to, to, to come up with some clever ideas. And when they actually start to, to to decipher the map, like she's able to figure some of this out. So from that point of view, definitely she's she's a better 
female lead than we'd seen in a lot of movies up until this point. Yeah, when, when she first meets Michael Douglas's character, his only real advantage that he has over, in you know, in terms of sort of taking charge, he knows the local area. Like, that's it. And, and he speaks the language, which, yeah. yeah. And then, like you mentioned, as the story starts to unfold, like, they're kind of equals. Like, I think she saves his as much as he saves hers. I love that scene in the in the local village when, yeah. when the local drug pin and his henchmen there, they're basically going to kill them. And Michael Douglas is like, okay, Joan Wilder, write your way out of this one. And he's like, Joan Wilder? The Joan Wilder? Muchachos, this is Juanita. The one I, I read the books to you on Sunday. And they, they all put their guns down. They're like, Juanita, Juanita. So I actually like how this movie doesn't just play out that whole damsel in distress, you know, Hollywood mm-hmm. trope that's been around forever. And I think if you take into account that this is 1984, it makes it even yeah. all the better. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so definitely, I like definitely. that. And, and, and I, like I said, I haven't seen the sequel, but I got to hope that in the sequel, she's a little bit more um, authoritative and assertive and confident. Like, I think I think confidence is the word I'm looking for because she's a fish out of water and and she's. You know, in this movie, anyway, the fact that she's lost, the fact that she's like trying to just do what she has to do to get this map to the people to free her sister. There's that naivete and that that, you know, um, that fear factor. I, I hope that in the second movie that gets diminished considerably to make her more of that equal. But again, we'll see. I haven't mm. watched it, but I'm going to watch it probably, you know, now that we've watched this one, I'm motivated to watch mm-hmm. the sequel. Well, we'll come back to the sequel in a bit. I want to talk a little bit about the director before we get into the cast. So Robert Zemeckis, because before this, he'd really only done used cars. You know, he directed a few other small movies, nothing a note, really. Unless you're a fan of I Want to Hold Your Hand. I don't know if you know that movie. It was was about these... The song by the Beatles? No, it was... The movie was about these teenagers that go to the Ed Sullivan show to see the Beatles back in 64. Um, Okay. But it did have Wendy Jo Sperber in it. I love her. She's great. But uh, so Zemeckis does this movie, and then, obviously... The next year, everything blew up for him when he did Back to the Future. And um, then he went on to do like... Now, what, who, now yeah. sorry, I had read in the notes that they, the studio had such a lack of confidence in this movie doing well that Zemeckis was supposed to direct Cocoon next, and they basically fired him off of that. Yeah. And then when this ended up being a hit, they immediately went back to him and said, no, 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 we want you. You do whatever you want. And he said, well, I had this little project about a science fiction Back to the Future. And they're like, fine, go ahead, do <laughs> it, do figure. it. So... <laughs> In a way, this this directly led to Back to the Future in in the best possible way. And if if this had had if the studio had, had more confidence in it, he would have put, potentially gone on to do Cocoon. We may not have had Back to the Future. So it's an interesting sort of what if kind of question. Mm-hmm. And I, I like Cocoon being directed by Ron Howard. I thought it was great the way it was. Yeah, it would have been interesting. So what else did Zemeckis did? He did uh, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Castaway. Yeah. Didn't. And who framed Roger Rabbit? I know you're not a big fan of that one, but uh, but like I mentioned, so this script was in turnaround at Columbia. And du- Michael Douglas was a producer, too. If you remember, back in the 70s, mm-hmm. he, he produced um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's well, Nest. I was going to say, he got an Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so then he was he liked the script. He You know, he got it. He couldn't get any A-listers to be in it. He tried Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood and Deborah Winger. They all turned him down. But like I mentioned, Raiders is a hit. So they're like, okay, okay, we got some interest in this. We're going to get this done. And he went with uh, Kathleen Turner, who was hot off body heat. No pun intended there, by the way. Um, and then they brought in Zemeckis to direct. He was basically like Steven Spielberg's protege at the time, too. Yeah. And yeah. I thought I, he I, did a great he, job. He worked with Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, he, I thought he did really good. You know, and this obviously put him on the sort of the road to success. 
But so let's talk about the cast. So, so like I said, I really like the casting in this movie. I think the chemistry between the two leads is great. I think you believe their romance. It's like a two-way street. And I think you, like, I feel like they both care about each other. I don't know. That's what my take on it was. So I want to mention Kathleen Turner. <laughs> man, I'm glad I watched this because, man, she was something back in the day. Like, so she debuts in Body Heat playing one of the most sexualized and sultry characters maybe in movie history. And she's got that raspy voice that just sort of plays into that whole thing. And then... But here, she adds this whole layer of like vulnerability and likability into the equation. I, I just think if people know her mainly from her later work, like when she played the trans dad of Chandler on Friends. Right. If, right. if that's all you know her from, I think it's important to know like she was a massive sex bomb back in the day, like Body Heat, Crimes of Passion. Pritzi's honor. I mean, she was Jessica Rabbit for crying out loud. You know, the sexiest cartoon right. character ever, right? Even though she was uncredited, you knew it was her. And she was nominated well, for an Oscar. Well, Zemeckis connection, right? I yeah. Mean, obviously, they had stayed close. She was nominated for an Oscar for uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. And like I mentioned, she won the Golden Globe for this. She also won the Golden Globe for Pritzi's honor. And the thing with her was right around the age of 40, she developed rheumatoid arthritis. And the condition and the medication that she had to take caused a lot of weight gain for her. Mm. And the media was just brutal with her, you know? And I think that caused her to drink a lot more too, which led to more weight gain. So it was just this vicious circle that she went through and it really affected her career. But I, like I say, if you, if you go back and watch her early work, man, she was something that's hugely talented. She was attractive. She had it all. I, I I thought she was absolutely perfectly cast in this movie. Do you agree? Yeah, no. She Yeah, she was great. No, Man, she was she definitely. Was uh, yeah, I can't imagine. You know, sometimes you're like, well, you know, these are the people that were up for the role. And you're like, oh, well, if that person had got it, it'd be a better movie. I'm like, no, I think I, I can't see this being a better movie with anybody else. Like she did exactly what she needed to do in the best possible ways. I got to go on an aside for a minute if I could. Because I got to give her a shout out because she was in one of my all time favorite comedy movies. So there's this movie called The Man with Two Brains. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a I've really heard of it. I don't small think I've little... It. Steve Martin, right? Yeah, Steve Martin. It's... My God, is it funny? So she plays this absolutely horrible woman in this movie. And Steve Martin is so in love with her. He just can't see any of the bad stuff about her. There's this one scene. They pull up to the house. There's these Mexican workers standing on the front, por front porch. And she's like, what are those doing on the front porch? And he's like, oh, honey... That's pronounced azaleas. <laughs> and like, this movie is so good. Merv Griffin is like the elevator killer. It is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And there's a scene where she has to go in for surgery and it's like brain surgery. So the male nurses shave her pubic hair like for no reason. Jeez. And Steve Martin is a surgeon. He's like, is that shaved in the shape of a heart? And the one male nurse says, well, we thought since it was Valentine's Day. And he's like, I suppose if it were Christmas, you'd hang ornaments on it. It's just, the, movie, God, the movie makes me laugh so much. I love, we have to do that movie sometime. I think. I really do. But anyway, so back to Romancing the Stone. I just had to go on a digression. Sorry. Um, Michael Douglas. You mentioned him. I really liked him here, too. Like, the thing was, up until this point, like, he didn't really strike you as much of an adventure hero. You know, and even if you think back of his career, like you think of him like 
Wall Street and Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. And even before this, like he was like the crime solving mystery stuff like Streets of San Francisco on TV. And he did like coma and the China syndrome. This is this didn't exactly scream adventure hero, you know, but I no. thought he was great here. Yeah, he was really good. Oh, man, he thought he was great. What do you think of the villains in this movie? I loved the villains in this movie. You? Uh, yeah. Danny I DeVito, mean, for example. Yeah, I mean, Danny DeVito, I think, was great. I, For some reason, I always, it, again, it had been 30 years since I watched this movie, but I seemed, I thought I remembered that he and Michael Douglas were partners. So when I was started watching this movie and it seemed like, oh, no, he's the bad guy, I kept thinking, is Michael Douglas in league with them? I don't know why I thought I remembered it being that way. So it was sort of, I was bringing this incorrect pre-assumption to the movie which was bizarre but yeah no I, I i like him as the villain and uh and the other guy that um uh that they met in the village the guy um uh, uh who had the the big truck mm-hmm. him i me- i immediately re- recognized him from the movie the three amigos he's the bad guy el guapo right so i was like oh my god i totally recognize that guy so and i thought he was great too he's a lot of a lot of fun and ira i liked him look at those snappers I thought that was I like really recognize that guy. Uh, I I, he done like minimal stuff, but I liked him in this movie. I thought he was really good, and even that Zolo guy was almost like a he's like a cartoon villain, you know, like like on Rocky and Bullwinkle or something like that. Yeah, he was crazy. Um, Some of the other uh, the other cast in there I want to mention Mary Ellen Trainer. So she's always one of those actresses I think that people seem to know they just can't quite place her. Like she was in Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, and of course. Mrs. Walsh from the Goonies. She was Brandon Mikey's mom. Right. So I always liked her. And Holland Taylor was like that too. Like, I think everybody knows her. They just can't put their finger on it. She was the the mom in Two and a Half Men. That's where I always remember Yes, yes. I remember her best from Bosom Buddies because, you know, I'm the the old guy. Um, But she was also in Saved by the Bell, the college years. And she was Truman's mom in The Truman Show. I know you like that movie. And and even recently... Um, she was she was in shows like Mr. Mercedes and The Morning Show. So and yeah, she was her. in um, yeah The Morning Show doesn't surprise me because she was in Legally Blonde with Reese Witherspoon. So it doesn't yes. surprise me that uh, that that connection continued through. So yeah, so no, she's she's done a lot of good stuff. But. So one thing about this movie that I thought kind of stood out to me was this idea of the hopeless romantic. You know, I think this is what makes this movie like really relatable. For people because you got Joan Wilder and she's this hopeless romantic. I mean, she even names her cat Romeo, you know, like just yeah. kind of hit you over the head with it. And she lives alone and writes these romantic novels and she's always looking for Jesse. But the thing was, Michael Douglas is a hopeless romantic too because he loves the ocean and he wants to afford to buy a boat so he can sail around the world. So again, I just, I see the two of them kind of as equals, you know, throughout this film. So that was something that stood out to me. Um, one of the things that also jumped out to me was there's a lot of quotes of this movie. So I wrote down a couple. I don't know if you have any. Um, at the beginning, when Holland Taylor and Joan are talking about um, Joan's sister and her, how her husband was killed. And, and Holland Taylor's like, did they ever find the body? And she's like, just the one piece. I was like, what? Like, that just kind of jumped out for me. And then when Holland Taylor's like, you can't go to Columbia. They have insects the size of sanitation trucks. You get sick riding the escalator at Bloomingdale's. So I thought that was pretty funny. Was there any quotes in the film that kind of jumped out to you? Or 
Um, no, nothing specifically. I know that. Um, again, I was reading in the in the trivia that uh, there was the whole thing about where they first meet and she's offering to pay him and they negotiate the price and then he asks her like Love travelers it. checks and then <laughs> she's like fifty bucks. Yeah. And he's like fifty bucks. Are you kidding me? She's so like, they have that. Yeah, yeah. So she's like, that. I and thought then, you lost everything. He's like, not my sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, that was good too. Yeah, and then so I mean that that's a moment in time because I mean seriously, who uses travelers checks in the digital world right. anymore? So that and, then he, and he's like American Express. She's like, of course, okay, deal. <laughs> well, and what I was reading was you had mentioned that he was on the show The Streets of San Francisco with with uh, was it Carl Malden? Carl was Malden, co-star. Yeah. And yeah. at the time, Carl Malden was was just one of the pitchmen for American Express. American so Express. that was a sort yeah. of a little wink, wink to the audience right. at that point, and that and I was like oh yeah so again it's those little things that they're of the moment but it didn't feel out of place watching it now yeah. but if you know it's just at a, at other, other level i mean hey it wasn't me i had to look it up but uh yeah i like no, when I, I like when he cuts off her high heels to it and then she's like those were italian he's like now they're practical I thought yeah. that was a funny joke and then when he, he he delivers this line it's kind of under his breath and i don't know that i ever caught it before but he he's he's getting shot at and he's like kind of talking to himself he's like i should have listened to my mother and been a cosmetic surgeon i'd be up to my neck and bits and <laughs> like that made me chuckle too i felt there was a, there was a few really really good scenes in this movie too any scenes that you like i'll start the one i liked was when they go down that mudslide yeah. She lands in the pool of water and then he comes down head first and lands with his head between her thighs and he's like it turned out to be one hell of a morning. <laughs> that, that was a pretty good scene. Um, and I and like we mentioned, I love that whole scene with Juan in the town when he recognizes yeah. her, you know, and then he's yeah. got his little mule and stuff. He's a great character. So I thought that scene was good. Yeah. Uh, any he, scenes that you enjoyed watching or that stood out to you? Um, aside from the ones you mentioned, no, I mean, nothing, nothing specific. Like a lot of a lot of newer action movies always have like what they would refer to like as a set piece where it's like this is the big aha like in Raiders of Lost Ark you have the set piece at the beginning where he's like going through the temple and the boulder and all the rest of that like I didn't really feel this movie had any one specific thing that was sort of that memorable it, it, but it worked the whole thing worked as as uh you know as the film but um one of the things I, I, that reminded me you were talking about when they uh when they show up in the the village and the, the guy's like you're joan wilder the author it reminded me of the television series that was on in the last 10 years called castle with um nathan fillion where he plays an author who ends up uh working with the new york police detective and they solve crimes and everywhere they go people are like oh you're richard castle and he it like opens doors with criminals and it gets him into clubs and stuff like he's able to use his celebrity because people recognize him as an author and i it was funny seeing it in this movie from the 1980s where they sort of use that same trope of here's this you know nobody in the middle of the jungle in Colombia, and suddenly this guy's like oh my god i've read your books so i just i thought that was fun and the fact that they were romance books i thought that was even funnier exactly and the like, fact that he reads these the romance books to yeah, his henchmen on exactly, sunday exactly. so funny and, right but it made sense though because like they the danny devito's character was constantly carrying around a copy of one of her books and because mm. it had his, her picture on the back and i think younger people may not remember because hey who reads you know hardback books anymore but a lot of those old hardback books had the author's picture either on the back mm -hmm. or in the inside flap like that was a big deal so it was a nice little uh 
walk down memory lane sort of to, to see that and, and to be reminded that that's that's how things used to be. And that, and that drug dealer, Juan, he gave the one book to Michael Douglas. He's like, you got to read this. And then he did. And then did. you see him reading it. And yeah. he's reading it through the, the thing. And he's like, this is pretty good. Like, she's she's really and he, And it was a bit of a a sort of a subplot that that's how he got to know her a bit better too. Another scene that really stood out to me though, was in the, the scene of the restaurant when Danny DeVito is like sneaking under the tables and he's trying to get the right. map. Yeah. And that woman at the table sees him under the, t- under the table and she just starts beating the living shit out of him. And she just keeps going and going and she drags him out and she's punching the crap out of him. And then the waiter gets involved and she beats the Get out of the waiter. I was like, that whole scene made me laugh. I just kept laughing and laughing. Like I mentioned, I think the last half hour of this movie was great. You know, like when they decide to go and get the treasure themselves, you know, so they got something to bargain with. But I have a question for you. I couldn't quite figure it out. So what was the deal with him trying to photocopy the map? I didn't didn't get the sense that he ever wanted to double cross her. So I was a little bit confused by that whole subplot. Like, Well, I think what it was is... She the the deal that she was trying to make to rescue the sister was to give the map to the other criminals. That was the arrangement. And then it was up to the criminals to to use the map to find the treasure. I think what Michael Douglas was trying to do was copy the map for himself, give her back the original, have her go to these other like deliver her to where she needs to go to rescue her sister. And then it would have been Michael Douglas trying to get to the treasure faster than the other criminals trying to get to the treasure. So I don't think it was so much a double cross on her because she, at the time, wasn't intending to get the treasure anyway. She just needed the map. And I, I think he, at that point, had realized he didn't want to just straight up steal it from her, uh, obviously because he was starting to like her. And I think mm-hmm. you were supposed to believe that he's a decent enough guy that if the sister was going to be murdered without the map, he couldn't just outright steal it steal it from her. So I, I think that's where that was supposed to go. Yeah, he was going to copy it and try and find the treasure himself after the transaction with the sister was completed. Yeah, maybe because he was encouraging her to go get the stone so they could bargain to get the sister back. And, and he even agreed to give it all up if it meant to save, you know, the sister's life. So yeah, I just, I was a little bit confused by that. Um, so another scene I like when, when, when he, he's, he's like, he, he shows up at the end. And they're like, well, where's a stone? He's like, it's somewhere safe. Yeah. And then he orders the the henchman to like hit him in the in the in the gonads with the mm-hmm. with the butt of the gun. The gun. And then it, you realize that the, the jewel was there, and it kind of goes down his leg. And he kicks it away, and Zolo catches it in his hand, and the crocodile comes up and yeah, bites his hand, hand off. off. I was like, oh my god, like, that was crazy. Um, and that whole scene too, again, I think reinforces the fact that. Like, she didn't need to be saved. Like, she burns Zola with his cigar. And then she hits him in the the, the bloody stump of his hand. And she makes him fall into the crocodile pit. So I thought that whole scene was really, really really great. And also, I think to reinforce it, Michael Douglas goes to chase the crocodile. And then she's like, oh, my God, you're leaving. And he's like, you're going to be fine, Joel Wilder. You always were. Like, I just, I thought it just reinforced that whole thing. Like... She didn't need to be saved. One thing I noticed, I watched it on Disney Plus. It was letterboxed. I'm not sure if it was just because to give it more perspective or something like that, which I thought was quite good. So I don't know. It just kind of jumped out to me. Um, 
What else? Oh, you mentioned the the sequel, Jewel in the Nile, the next year in 1985. Yeah, I never, never saw it, but it's interesting. The timing of this is interesting. So I think uh, I'm, I'm going to go off a tangent, but I'll bring it back, I promise. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned on, on a lot of our podcasts, I have the Sirius XM radio, and one of the shows that I enjoy is every week they do a countdown from a random year from the 80s, and you get the top 40 from this week in the 1980s. So the countdown from this week was from 1986, mm-hmm. and the number one song was... The, when the going gets tough, tough get going by Billy Ocean. Billy Ocean. Was the theme song to the sequel to this movie we're it doing, was. which was Jewel the Nile. And so they were actually talking a little bit about it. The the DJs were talking about it. And I was like, or no, it was number two because they were like, it never got to number one because Whitney Houston was number one for like eight weeks in a row. But um, so I was like, oh, it was just. They did a video now. too, like with like with the, well, the actors. That's what they said. Yeah. They said that even in the video, they had them, they had them singing along, they had yep. them dancing in there, and there were clips from the movie. And I was like, oh yeah. So it's funny how just sometimes these coincidences happen. Though here we are watching this movie this week for our show, and then sure enough, that that comes on as a part of the '80s countdown that also happened to just be from '86. So and, and Billy Ocean was a thing for like a year, and that was it. You know. Because he also did, um, oh, what was his other big song? Get Out of My Dreams. Get Out of My Dreams. Get yeah, Into My Car, yeah. And then, but that was kind of it. He kind of went away. Caribbean so, Queen, I think those were all off Oh, yeah, album. Caribbean Queen was his first one, right? So uh, the question I need to ask you about this movie, because you can answer this better than I can, how does this movie stand up today against action movies now? I, I think it was pretty good. I think that um, it holds up well because there's not a lot of stuff in this movie that I felt that was that dated it in a bad way. Like the fact that they had to try and find a telephone is is fun and interesting. Whereas today, most people just have mobile phones. So that wouldn't be a plot point to the same level, mm-hmm. to the same extent. But also at the same time, I think in a more modern world, the the kidnapping of the sister wouldn't have gone over because there would have been, you know, you, there would have been a more instantaneous communication and, and, and all that stuff. But no, I think for, for the movie that's set when it is, I think it, it works well. I think that there's not a lot, like we often watch some of these movies, like you said, Revenge of the Nerds came out the same year as this one. Like that movie is so problematic for so many reasons. And it came out in the same calendar year. Whereas this one, I didn't really feel had anything that glaring. There was mm-hmm. a, you know, a handful of times where you sort of roll your eyes, like especially in the bar where they were like looking at the different guys right. and the guys were all like trying to hit on them and stuff that, but that's of its time. And it, it, Again, there wasn't a scene where like one of those creepy guys came over and like did anything inappropriate, which, you know, again, by by any standard, but especially by today's standard would have been seen like as super cringy, whereas back in the 80s, it might have been more. But the, quote, the, but the best part about that scene was it was the girls judging the guys, which I love. So it flipped and, it on its head. So yeah. I like that, too. Like it, normally back then it would have been the guys, you know looking at the girls and like, you know, making comments about them. It was, it, they flipped it around. So I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know? So, um, one of the things, cause I, 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 since we're getting close to wrapping it up here, yeah. one of the yeah. things they did, there's a new movie that just came out this year. Uh, uh, pardon me, 2022, a couple of years back. Um, but I only just recently watched it. I think it was on Netflix, if I remember correctly. And it's called the lost city and it stars, uh, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. And it's, almost a beat for beat remake of this movie but it's oh. a it's it's the it's sort of a gender swap sandra bullock is the author and she's written a book uh and and she's written this series of romance adventure books and channing tatum is the cover model basically the fabio where he's just there for the picture but he's he's always goes on her on the book tours because it's he's popular and he's good looking and then and the women all want to see him and then early in the early in the movie 
these bandits basically kidnap Sandra Bullock because they're like, well, you wrote all these books about this ancient history, blah, 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 and the treasure, so you must know you can help us. And it's got uh, Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe is the main bad guy. And Channing Tatum basically decides, I'm going to try and rescue Sandra Bullock because, look, I'm the cover model. I'm, I'm good at this stuff. And the two of them end up lost in the jungle. But she's the one who actually knows how to do this stuff because she she's done all the homework and, sh and she had been an archaeologist prior to becoming a writer. And so she's able to lead them through the jungle successfully, whereas Channing Tatum's just the eye candy and he's like trying to be useful, but he's just making all these mistakes. But it is so you want to like I wouldn't call it a ripoff clearly this many years later, but clearly inspired and heavily referencing this this romancing the stone movie. So if you like this movie and you're looking for something a little more modern. The Lost City on Netflix was fun. It, I mean, it's mm. not fantastic. It only got a 6.1 on the IMDb, but uh, I mean, it, the two performers are easy on the eyes, and, and I always love a movie where Harry Potter's the villain. So, uh, you know, it was uh, it was decent. So, so nice. the the idea of using this sort of storytelling device, this idea of the treasure hunt, the idea of the author who uh, actually is you know more informed of real world things than you you might think uh, as as like an important character in the book uh, or in the in the, the movie rather it's 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 an idea that continues to work and continues to be mined for uh, for a lot of success okay so going back to this movie you want to give it a rating out of 10 for me probably give it a seven or seven and a half oh very good I would give it an eight I I, I really enjoyed it I thought it stood up really well and I thought it was a lot of fun to watch and uh, yeah so I give it eight out of ten pretty high nice so all right, so on that note, what do you say we have some? Fun with Caveman. All right, so Derek, it was over to you this week for trivia. Um, what have you got lined up for us? Well, we're going to go back to a, to a classic. We're going to play a little game that I like to call Pick the Flick. Pick the Flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year... All right, take it away. All right, so uh, this movie's all about uh, regular people going on a treasure hunt, and sure, yeah. there are a lot of movies that follow this idea, and in fact, you've mentioned about six of the ones in my trivia on tonight's show, so... This is going to be just like the old ones where Yancey had all this great trivia and you like answered all the questions during the podcast. <laughs> Sorry. So, all good, all good. So I've got a list of... I didn't count them. There's got probably about 15 on here. Uh, some are older, like even older than your comfort zone. Some are okay. a little newer. I know those ones might trip you up a little bit. If you need a hint, let me know. In addition to the the year and the synopsis, I have the list of the, the lead performers. So if you need a hint, let me know. I'll give you one or two of the performers. That might help you along a bit. All right? right. So first one is from 1995. A female pirate and her companion race against their rivals to find a hidden island that contains a fabulous treasure. Ooh, from, that's from 95? Um, Do you need a hint? Yeah, give me a little bit of a hint. The lead was Gina Davis as the female pirate. Oh, was that that stupid, like, cutthroat island? Yes! Oh, yeah. And you even called it stupid, which is also... Oh, nice. it was terrible. It was a bomb, wasn't that? Like, Randy it was Harlan awful. or something? It yeah. rented really well at Blockbuster. Oh, People just thought, oh, a pirate movie, let's get this. It also right. had Matthew Modine and Frank Langella. All oh, right. Jeez. From... And I, this one I saw in the theater. 1986. Okay. A pair of adventurers try to track down an ancient hoard of Mexican gold. Ooh, from 86. 
Oh, jeez. I I don't know. Stars Chuck Norris. <laughs> I really and, don't and know. And Lou Gossett Jr. They made a movie together. Oh, what the yeah. hell was it? It was called Firewalker. Oh man, it sounds terrible. It was pretty bad. I don't even but know 12 that. Twelve-year-old me was like Chuck Norris in a treasure hunting movie. I'm all in. And uh, yeah, all right. This is a classic. Let me finish reading the description because I'm sure you're going to get it before I get there. It's all from right. 1963. Oh, we're going way back. Way back. All right. A group of motorists witness a car crash in the California desert, and after the driver's dying words indicate the location of a hidden stash of loot they turn against each other in a race across the state to get it oh oh i I know that this is um, uh, it's a mad 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 world that's correct yes Yes. yeah that was like oh my god i remember that was uh oh man let's see zero mostel was in that and everything oh yeah i remember that yeah they did a simpsons parody of that with cat burglar where he's like the treasure's buried under a giant t yeah well-known movie well-known movie that one all right this one's Unlike the Chuck before. Norris crap that you just yeah. Well, this one's going back even further. This one's from 1950. Oh, geez. This is an easy one. Adventurer Alan Quartermain leads an expedition into uncharted African territory in an attempt to locate an explorer oh. who went missing during his search for a fabled diamond mine. So interestingly, I only thought this was an 80s movie that was ripping off Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's got to be King Solomon's Mines. It is. This one starred Deborah Kerr and Stuart Granger. Oh, man. Sure. Didn't even yeah. know. Going oh, way back. God. Like, I just, I thought that right. was just the um, the one that no, came out No, and then they with. did an 80s, they did a remake of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, here's another oldie goldie, 1969. All right. A bandit kidnaps a marshal who has seen a map showing a gold vein on Indian lands, but other groups are looking for it too, while the Apache try to keep the secret location undisturbed. Oh, God, I have no idea. Sorry. Stars Gregory Peck and Omar Sharif and Telly Savalas. <laughs> that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> all right, it's called McKenna's Gold. Oh, okay, I've never heard of it. <laughs> all, right. all right, this one's a nice easy one. All right. You're definitely going to get it, and we have reviewed it on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm looking at it, I might have even got the year wrong. But uh, 1975. Yeah, I don't think that's right. King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table embark on a surreal, low-budget search for the Holy Grail, encountering many very silly obstacles. Oh, it's it's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes, it is. And we have not reviewed that on the show here. Did we not review this nope. one? Nope. We no, did, we did, uh, we did Monty, Monty Python's Python. Meaning of Life. Right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Okay. All right. This one's a lot newer, but I think I think you got a chance at this one. It's from 2004. Mm-hmm. A historian races to find the legendary Templar treasure before a team of mercenaries. So I remember this is National Treasure. Yes, Star Nicholas Cage. Yeah, I remember watching that one with a friend of mine, and I remember right around that time, um, The Da Vinci Code was a yes. huge book. And they made it into a movie, and the movie sucked. The movie and was I, awful. And I was like, National Treasure is more true to the spirit of the Da Vinci Code book than the movie The Da Vinci Code was, the Da Vinci Code book. Absolutely agree. Because yep. it was like you kind of pieced together everything along the way, and it was actually pretty good. It was, it was a lot of fun. And the Nicolas Cage of it all made it that much more fun. Yeah, was, now, they made a sequel, which I never saw. But no, uh, I never saw the sequel. But the original, I, I thought it was actually a lot of fun to watch. So. Yeah. yeah. All right. Another more recent one that mm-hmm. you may or may not get was a pretty big movie in its day, though, from 2000. Okay. In 
the deep south during the 1930s, three escaped convicts search for hidden treasure while a relentless lawman pursues them. It sounds like this movie that I didn't really like was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's correct. Yes, yes. That was one with uh, George Clooney and there was the Coen brothers. John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, yeah. Yeah. I remember I didn't really like that movie that much, but... Yeah, I never saw it, but I heard it was. Uh, uh, people seem to be pretty polarized. You either love it or yeah, I wasn't uh, one of the brothers, of right? So yeah, all right. This is the easiest one on the list. If you get this wrong, we can't be friends anymore. In 1936, an adventuring archaeologist is hired by the U.S. government to find a religious artifact before the Nazis can obtain its awesome power. Oh, of course, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you go. Raiders of the Lost Ark. One of my favorite movies of all time. I, that's what I said. If you, guys you threw me off. I said I thought you said 1936. I was like, what? That was 81. Okay. The movie took place in 1936. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, another newish one, which uh, which I've mentioned before, not on this podcast, but I've mentioned before, is one of my sort of guilty pleasure movies. Mm-hmm. 2005. Okay. Based on a very famous book. Master explorer Dirk Pitt goes on the adventure of a lifetime of seeking out a lost Civil War battleship known as the Ship of Death in the deserts of West Africa while helping a WHO doctor bring, uh, uh, pardon me, helping a WHO doctor being hounded by a ruthless dictator. Wasn't it a remake? Wasn't it like Sahara? It was Sahara. It was not a remake. It I thought Sahara been, was a remake. I remember when that came movie. out. My dad and I were talking about that. And he's like, that's a remake of an old movie. No, it's it might share the title of an older movie, but this is based on a book by Clyde. Oh, OK, maybe that was it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oldie Goldie. I think you're going to get this one. I like the oldie goldies. You know me. 1948. Oh, wow. That's, that's really old. Okay. All right. Yeah. Two down on their luck Americans searching for work in the 1920s Mexico convince an old prospector to help them mine for gold. Uh, is that with Bogart? Yes. Was it Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Yes. Yes. And we don't need no stinking badges. Oh, is that where that's yes, from? Yes, of course it was. So, I've never seen this. I literally have it on the PVR. It was on the Turner Classic Movies a few weeks ago, and I thought, I'm going to record this. I've never seen it. All right. Only got a couple more for you here. All right. Uh, all right. Again, a new-ish one that I think you're going to get. 1999. All right. Okay. In the aftermath of the Persian Gulf War, four soldiers set out to steal gold that was stolen from Kuwait, but they discover people who desperately need their help. Oh, I don't know. That doesn't ring a bell with me at all. Stars George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg. 99 still doesn't ring a bell with me. No, it's, sorry. Uh, all right. It was called Three Kings. Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. Sorry. It was pretty good. No. Uh, all right. This is the absolute newest one on my list from 2022. This is for all the, the young people out there. It's it's. I'll give you a hint up front. So it's, it's, so it's not for me. It's no, it's based, based on a video game franchise, if okay. that's going to help you. Because I know you're such a big video game guy. <laughs> and all a right. new movie fan. Yeah. Yeah. Street smart Nathan Drake is recruited by seasoned treasure hunter Victor Sully Sullivan to recover a fortune amassed by Ferdinand Magellan and lost 500 years ago by the House of Mon- Moncanda. I couldn't tell you with a gun to my head. I have no idea. It's called Uncharted. It also it stars Tom Holland. Oh, and I remember get, my my son wanted to go see that movie. Yeah. Uncharted. He was going on and on and on about that movie. Yeah. Based oh, on video game series. It stars Tom hmm. Holland and Mark Wahlberg and Antonio Banderas. Do look at that two in a row for Mark Wahlberg. Mm-hmm. 
All right, last one on my list. Again, I wanted to make sure you got a nice, easy one at the end. Got to boost that confidence for you. It's from 1985. Oh, we're going back into right, my wheelhouse. Right in your comfort zone. So I like All that. right. A young group of misfits discover an ancient map oh. and set out on an adventure <laughs> to find a legendary pirate's long-lost treasure. Oh, man. Goonies never say die, baby. No, they do not. You got nice. that right. Love it. Nice. nice. You did really good. You got, you got, I'm a little worried. I knew some of the newer ones would throw you. But. Yeah, they always, they always throw me for a loop. But there was a couple old ones too I wasn't sure of, so. Exactly. What was the one? Uh, the Three so, Kings? Is that the one? That one really threw me for a loop. I don't know that one, so. All right, I have, I have a little extra bonus trivia for oh, you. Oh, nice. Since what the last, got? since the last question, the answer was the Goonies. I have a little bit of Goonies trivia for you. That's, and the only reason I bring this up is my wife and I sort of stumbled across this the other day, and I thought that you would enjoy this. So, how many, how many people on the cast of the Goonies, just the performers, have been nominated or won an Academy Award? Well, Kiwai Kwan was nominated. Um, I would say that um, I'm going to want you to name everyone you think you know. Okay, so he was nominated and won, and um, Bran was nominated for oh, what was that movie? In like no, 2006, it was No Country for Old Men. He was nominated in that one, I think. So I'll say two. And he was nominated, but not for that. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Milk, Josh Brolin. Oh, okay, is that what it was? Um, so that's two. Uh, I would just say it was a two. Who else is in that movie? Let me just sit here for a second. And just say there was those two. You'd be you'd be only halfway there. Oh, two wow, other cast four. members have been nominated. Oh, wait a minute, Anne Ramsey. She Anne I forgot. Ramsey. Yeah, she was nominated for a Throw Mama from the Train. Yes, yes, right? best supporting actress Throw Mama from the Train. There's one other performer that was nominated for an actor for a, an Oscar. Mm. Guesses. This is the one that threw us. We had to look it up. Let me just think about this for a second. It's sort of a trick question. They did not win for acting. Oh well, then that's that's kind of hard. So then I wouldn't be able to get it. No. So it was it was Sean Astin. He was nominated in 1994 for mm-hmm. a short film called Kangaroo oh, well. Court. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. That's no, a we Fargan were, trick question. Yeah, it is. It is. The re, no. The reason I asked is we were watching something and they were talking about the Goonies and they're like, yeah, you know, with four people who have gone on to have Oscar nominations, we're like four, four. And so yeah, I just thought that was a little bit of interesting side trivia about the Goonies. So hmm. anyhow. Okay, so that's that's pretty cool. That's good stuff. I love the Goonies too. So that, that's good. So what do you say next time we come back with like a, a topic? Like yeah, our, our no, next show, like maybe like a top five list or something like that. We'll do that. Sound good? Sounds good. Sounds right. good. Now we just got to come up with the top five. We got to uh, We'll it. decide on something between now and then. I'm sure we will. We always do. So I tell you what, until next time, I'm Chris McBride. That's Derek Myers. And we're saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.